My name is Matt Morton. I'm one of the pastors here. We're going to be in the book of Philippians chapter 3 this morning. Philippians 3 verses 1 through 11. And so if you have a Bible, go ahead and get there. And I want to ask you a question for a moment. Go back in your mind just for a second to your junior high and high school years. If that's not too painful for you to go to that place, uh, try to go back there with me for just a second and think about the social structure of your school. There were almost certainly kids who were popular and kids who were not and kids in between. I can remember that structure at my own junior high. I can remember that out of a class of maybe 300 kids in my junior high, there were probably 20 that were considered the popular kids. They set the social agenda. Everybody wanted to go to their parties. Everybody wanted to sit with them at the lunch table. And I remember walking into the cafeteria and you would see the cool table and there would be the popular kids sitting at their table. And then right behind them, there would be a hundred other kids trying to squeeze into that table, right? Just to be near the coolness. And uh, there was a very well-defined, it seemed, uh, sort of social pecking order, and I always wanted to be at the top, probably like everybody. I was neither at the top nor at the bottom, but I always dreamed of ascending my way up into the upper echelons of this junior high society. And so uh, back in my day, when I was in junior high, you know, we spiked our hair to try to look like uh, we were in Top Gun or something like that, and we popped our collars, you know, we'd pop them up to kind of look cool. And I did all of that, but it did not earn me a seat at this table. Uh, But one day I had a moment that I thought was going to be my golden entry where I could finally say, I am in, I am accepted, I am okay. And uh, here's what that moment consisted of. I learned by heart the McDonald's menu song. Now, some of you will recognize that, most of you will not. Back in the late 80s, McDonald's had an ad campaign where they had people who sang the entire menu. And supposedly, if you went in and sang it, you could get something free. So my brothers and I got a record, and uh, we played it over and over and over again to memorize this song. And in fact, I still remember part of it. It began, it went Big Mac McDLT, a quarter pounder with some cheese, filet of fish, a hamburger, a cheeseburger, a Happy Meal McNuggets, tasty golden french fries, regular or larger size of salad, chef or garden, or a chicken salad oriental. And that's actually all I remember right now. I know, yeah, thank you. I knew... I knew one day that would merit me some kind of applause and favor. So this is my moment in the sun. So uh, I sang that for a friend of mine in the morning. Well, by lunchtime, word had kind of rippled around the school that there's this kid who knows the song. And so at lunch, I'm sitting there and here I look up and all the popular kids are headed to my table and they said, sing the song. We want to hear it. And I thought, this is it. This is my moment of glory. So I sang the song and they were amazed. Their jaws dropped open and uh, they, were, they, they were complimentary. You did such a great job. Wow, that's awesome. That's cool. And I thought, this is it. They're going to invite me to their parties. And I'll never forget what happened next was after I finished the song, after I received all the compliments, they all went back to their table. And that was a moment for me where I realized how fickle the approval of people really is. All of us in this room, if we're honest, we have a desire to be able to say, you know what, I'm okay, I'm acceptable. And we often seek that feeling of acceptance in the eyes of other people. We look around and we say, if I can do this or this, if I can just keep up with so-and-so, then I will be accepted or acceptable. If I can climb to a certain place in my career, if I can amass a certain amount of wealth, if I can look a certain way, then I will be acceptable. 
And we want that sense of being okay. And I think the reason we want that is because uh, deep in our heart, we really want that sense of okayness from God. God has wired us to be in a relationship with him. And the truth is that our souls and our hearts are really not at peace until we can say, I'm okay with God. He accepts me. And then we can have a settled sense of assurance that I'm acceptable, that we're okay. If you were a Jew in the first century, the question of how you were acceptable to God was a huge one. And if you were a Jew in the first century, you answered that question, am I acceptable to God, by comparing yourself to the law. And so if you kept the Mosaic law, the Old Testament law, to a certain extent, if you were of a Jewish family, if you were a circumcised male, you would look at yourself and look at the law, and if, you, if it added up, okay, if you said, I keep it well enough, then you could say, I'm acceptable. And then when Jesus came along, Jesus challenges all those notions of what it means to be accepted by God, to be acceptable and able not only to worship God, but then to come into a community of other believers and worship with them, to look at this other community of God's people and say, I am okay with them and I am okay with God. And it created all this tension in the first century church because Jesus had said, you cannot ever be okay by keeping the law because no matter how good you are, your heart is still evil and bad. And sin starts in your heart. And as we just saying, if it's not one thing, it's another. If I can externally keep the law okay and look all right, the truth is that pride creeps up in my heart, anger creeps up in my heart, all kinds of attitudes and sins that are displeasing to God creep up in my heart and I can never do enough. And so Jesus died once and for all to pay the penalty of sin and rose again. And now as we move into the, new, into the first century church, what we see is this message being preached that acceptability before God only comes when we have faith in Jesus and receive God's righteousness credited to us, not because of what we've done. Well, that creates problems for those who had made their living and their life and their world all about the law. In particular, the Pharisees. The Pharisees were key religious leaders of their day. And they had codified the law into 613 commands. And they could keep them perfectly. And they could do it. And guess what? You couldn't. Because you didn't have time. Because you had a job. Right? The Pharisees, that's all they did was sit around and talk about how they could keep the law and what the law looked like. And they built this hedge around it and around themselves. And they could say, I'm acceptable before God and you're not. And so as we begin to move into the church and as, as people begin to believe in Jesus and particularly Gentiles begin to believe in Jesus, there's a movement that begins of these sort of roaming bands of Jewish teachers who go from church to church and they say, hey, here's the deal. Jesus is okay. Jesus is something you need. You need Jesus, but you also need the law. Jesus is good, but you need Jesus and something else so that your sense of acceptance before God is Jesus plus. And the emphasis of really all of Paul's letters in the New Testament, if you read them, is just Jesus. Just Jesus. Add nothing. There's no Jesus plus in order to know God accepts you. 
before we get into the passage here in a moment, I want to ask this question. If I ask you this morning, how do you know that you're okay with God? How do you know you're acceptable to Him? How would you answer that question? How do you know you're part of God's in-group? Because of your Christian family? Because you read your Bible every day? Because you pray? Because you give to missionaries in Africa? Because you've been to Africa twice? How do you know you're okay with God? Even as Christians... I think it's easy to buy into the lie that God loves me more, approves of me more, accepts me more if I work a little harder, if I do a little more, if I'm a little better than somebody else. And Paul says that is a lie. And so he is extremely concerned to communicate to these men and women that you are okay because Jesus died and rose for you. And when God looks at you, he sees acceptable because he has credited you with the righteousness of God, meaning all your obligations before God have been met. How do you know you're okay before God? It's not on the basis of what you do, but only on the basis of what Jesus has done. That's the message of Philippians chapter 3. Let's look at Philippians 3, beginning in verse 1. Paul says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision, who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless." First thing that Paul wants us to know is this, that you are not accepted by God because of what you do. God doesn't accept us because of our works. And he starts this passage right away and he says, rejoice in the Lord. He says this over and over and over again, by the way, in the book of Philippians. It's known as this joyful book. Paul says, rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. And this joy comes from a settled sense of assurance that God loves me and accepts me because of Jesus. In other words, why does he start with this command in chapter 3 before he talks about the relationship of works and faith? The reason is this. When I rejoice in the Lord, what that means is I look at what God has done for me in Jesus Christ and I say, that's a joyful thing. And I derive my joy and my satisfaction and my security from the fact that I know him. And then I'm less tempted to look at the fickle works that I do on a day-to-day basis. I'm less tempted to look at the fickle approval of others. I'm less tempted to listen to these lies that say you have to do more and more and more because your joy comes from the Lord. I, I think back to that period of time, junior high and high school, and I think, you know, one thing that would have helped me and perhaps you going through that tough period of time to feel accepted was actually to look at the love that my parents and my family had for me that is settled and secure and doesn't change and they love me because I'm their child as opposed to the love that you seek from your classmates and the people around you that wavers from day to day. And to an even greater degree, Paul says, you look at God and you're his child. Why? Because of Jesus. 
and you can rejoice. But there are those coming in who want to add something you have to do in order to be accepted by God. And so he goes on and he says, beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. Those who would say, you need to look to something else rather than take joy in the world. Now, dogs, evil workers, mutilators of the flesh, these are not compliments. In the the early world, in the ancient world, dogs were not fluffy house pets that you kept around your home. Uh, dogs traveled in packs through the street. They would eat from the garbage and they would, they would eat dead bodies, actually. They would scavenge on carcasses in the street. And it was said that the Jews had a saying that if you found a dead animal on, in the road or in a field, you know who could eat that dead animal? Either dogs or Gentiles. And they routinely called the Gentiles dogs. And so these false teachers are coming in saying, you know what, if you're not circumcised, you don't keep the law, you know what you are, you're a dog. And Paul turns it around. He says, no, the dogs are those who would lie to you and say you need to add something to Jesus. He calls them evil workers. They're claiming you have to follow the law and do good works for God to accept you. Paul says, no, they are evil workers. They say you have to be circumcised and enter into fully the Jewish community. And Paul says, no, they're mutilators. They are lying to you. And you watch out. He says it three times. Watch out. Watch out. Watch out. Circumcision in the Old Testament was the sign of God's covenant with Abraham. You circumcised your male baby at eight years old to demonstrate that you wanted to be a part of God's kingdom program, that he had promised Abraham land and descendants and blessing, and through this nation, blessing would go out to all the earth. And so you circumcised your children as a sign that you trusted God to to keep his promises. And yet what Paul points out all the way through the New Testament, particularly in Philippians and Romans and Galatians, that circumcision never actually made you right with God. Circumcision was an outward sign. That's all it was. It was an external sign of something that should have been happening internally, which is I trust in God so I can know him. And ultimately, I trust in what Jesus has done to make me right with God. Circumcision is just an outward sign. If I walked in here this morning dressed all in a black robe with a scimitar, that doesn't make me a ninja, right? I might wish it did. I might hope it did. It doesn't actually do it. Wearing the costume doesn't make me one. When my son was two years old, he had a costume in his closet that he often wore. It was a white lab coat and a stethoscope, and uh, he had a bunch of little plastic doctor toys, and uh, it was cute. We called him Dr. Samuel, and he would play Dr. Samuel. But I'm just going to tell you, if I walked into an emergency room and he walked in, I'm not going to let him operate on me. He doesn't have the credentials. Wearing a lab coat, wearing a stethoscope doesn't make you a doctor. Nope, those are external signs maybe that you are one. You wear them to show other people that you already are one, but it doesn't make you one. Similarly, circumcision doesn't make you one of God's people. It's an outward sign of an inner reality that you trust in him for your righteousness. And Paul says when you trust in the law, when you trust in circumcision, when you trust in anything external, you are undermining the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. 
And he goes on to say, look, if anybody has a reason for confidence in the flesh, guess what? I have more. You want to boast in your pedigree? I've got a better one. He says, I was circumcised the eighth day. That's from Leviticus 12. Uh, Jews were commanded by God to circumcise their babies on the eighth day. Paul says, I was. He says, I'm an Israelite. I'm from the nation of Israel. In other words, both of my parents are Jews. I, I didn't have a Jewish parent and a Gentile parent. I am of the nation of Israel. He goes on, he says, I am of the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin is an important tribe because the first king of Israel, Saul, came from Benjamin. And Paul is originally named what? Saul. Probably named after King Saul. He says, look, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew from Hebrews. That's probably a way of saying my parents even spoke Hebrew and Aramaic. I didn't grow up speaking Greek. I grew up speaking Hebrew. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. And that's his family pedigree. You think you have some sort of pedigree? I've got a better one. Had a friend in high school who was related to the Oshman Sporting Goods uh, family. Her last name was Oshman. Some of you, again, won't know that name, but used to be really one of the largest sporting goods stores in the country. They had 250, 300 stores all over the country, and they were these huge sporting goods stores, and she was related to them, and so she liked sometimes to go into the store and just look around and just sort of see how they would treat her. And if she felt she wasn't being treated appropriately then, she would wait till a critical moment and pull out her Oshman family discount card. And the treatment invariably changed. Because now they saw her as acceptable because of her pedigree, because of her family, because of who she was. That's what Paul says. Look, you want to look at pedigrees, you want to start comparing families, mine's better. Some of us are tempted, perhaps, to look at our spiritual heritage to be okay with God. My parents were strong Christians, missionaries, pastors, whatever it may be. I grew up in church. I went to Awana and memorized verses and and did them better than the other kids. Now, all of those are good things, and we'll talk about that in a moment but they are not the basis for our acceptability before God. Paul even goes on and he says, not just family pedigree that we need to be careful about, but even the works that we do, even the things Paul says that I did as a grown-up where I was trying to serve God well. He says, as to the law of Pharisee. In other words, I was the cream of the crop. The Pharisees were the ones that knew the law better than anyone and kept it. That was me. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. In other words, I cared so much about the law and about doing what was right that I saw Jesus and the message of righteousness through him. I saw that as a threat to God. And so I persecuted the church. As to the law, I was blameless. Nobody could look at Paul and say, you don't keep it. He's not saying I thought I was sinless. He's just saying I was good enough and I was probably better than you. If you want to look at pedigrees, Paul says, I've got the best one. And many of us are tempted to look at what we do, who we are, what we've accomplished to say, I'm okay with God. Think for a moment about your own pedigree. I took some time while I was working through this passage to jot down some of those things that might constitute my personal pedigree. I was born to Christian parents, raised in a Christian home, born in the United States, taught about Jesus. They taught me about Jesus from a young age. I went to church since I was a kid, not just church, a Bible church since I was little. I led worship 
at church. I went to seminary. I'm a pastor. I read the Bible. I pray. I give money to the church. Sometimes I even serve people, and I'm nice sometimes. What's your pedigree? I read the Bible every day. I pray for an hour, a lot. I visit nursing homes. I go on mission trips. I give my money away. I'm nice to my spouse, even though my spouse isn't always nice to me, right? I think my kids would agree I'm the nicer parent, okay? Let me ask you this, and this will help highlight, I think, in our hearts where we find significance and approval. When you don't do X, let's say you miss a day of your quiet time, how does God feel about you? Does he still accept you, love you? Do you feel a little bit like, hmm, he's disappointed with me today? When you are aware of your sin, perhaps when you have sinned in some way that you know is wrong, do you envision God backing away and saying, hmm, not sure if I know him? If so, there's a chance that you, just like me, are tempted to find your approval before God on what you do. We'll see, again, those works are not bad, and they have a place in our Christian life, but not in order to earn God's approval. But we serve Him and obey Him, ultimately, because we already have it. And our service and our obedience springs from a place of full acceptance before God. Paul says, God doesn't accept us because of what we do. Nothing you have done earns you God's favor. Nothing except that Jesus died for you and rose again, and you place your faith in him. And God looks at you, and this word righteous really means, ultimately, that all of your obligations before God are met. There is no debt that you owe God because Jesus paid it on your behalf. God doesn't accept us because of our works, but Paul goes on, and he says, no, God accepts us because of Jesus. Look at verses 7 through 11. But whatever things were gained to me, Those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Now, this is interesting. Paul says, all that pedigree I listed before, circumcised, I'm Jewish, I'm a Pharisee, I persecuted the church, I'm blameless according to the law. My temptation is I I add all of that up in the plus column, in the win column. And I say, because of this, God loves me, God accepts me, I am his, and I can sit at the lunch table with all of those righteous Jews. And he says, no, in Jesus Christ, you know what I do? I take all of that stuff and I move it to the loss column. Not because it's bad, but because when it's over here, I look at it and I say, that's why God accepts me. And as long as I'm doing that, it'll kill my spiritual life. So he says, I take all that stuff and I put it in the liability column. You know, there are places in this world where a degree from the University of Texas might be in the plus column. Dark, terrible corners of the world, right? 
where someone might look at that and be impressed and say, wow, you have a degree from that university. That's a plus. But then there are beautiful, bright places where you put it in the liability column. You say, nope, it's a negative. What's a positive in one place is a negative in another. It's not that the works and the pedigree and all that good stuff is bad in and of itself. It's only bad if I use it to merit favor before God. You see that the works and the background and the family, they're not evil. They're just not made to carry the weight of your acceptance before God. And so Paul says, for that, I put it over here in the lost column. Compared to Jesus Christ, he says, I count it as nothing. And even, even more than that, I count it as, as a loss. As long as I'm tempted to look at those things and say, that's why God accepts me and gives me eternal life and lets me sit at his table. It reminds me of a parable that Jesus told in Matthew 13, about a man who goes to work in a field. He's just a hired hand, and he goes to work in this field. And one day he discovers under the ground a pearl that is priceless. Can't even measure how much it's worth. And so he goes and and he sells everything he has, everything he has to go buy that field just so he can get that little pearl. He says, compared to that pearl, everything else I have spent my life earning and working for is worthless. That's how Paul feels about the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It cannot even be compared with all this other stuff he puts over here. In fact, he says, I count it all to be lost. And he says, I consider it but rubbish. That's a strong Greek word. It has the idea of dung. It's so low compared to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I don't even want to look at it to earn me favor before God. This is the message that revolutionized the life of Paul and that changed the trajectory of history that in Jesus Christ, you are acceptable to God if you've trusted in him because he died to pay the penalty of all your sin and you are a sinner and he rose again. And now the great news is that if you've trusted in him, the spirit that raised him from the dead lives in you because you've been cleansed, because you've been forgiven. His spirit lives in you. And now you walk with him in a relationship of obedience and love and service. Again, not so that you can earn his favor, but because he's already given it to you. And you get the sense from Paul's letters that he says, why would I not serve, obey, love, follow a God who's accepted me? like that, so unconditionally. Look at Romans chapter 8. When we talk about the life of the Spirit, Romans 8 is probably one of the most important chapters in the Scripture in that regard. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. What is he saying in Romans? It's that the works that I now do They may actually look the same as the ones I did in my own strength. But the motivation and the means are markedly different. Because Paul says, before 
I was trying to run on this hamster wheel to earn God's approval. He says, now I know I have it. God looks at me and he says, you are okay in Jesus. And out of the overflow of the love he's shown you, now I tell others about him. I obey him. I serve him. Not to earn his favor, but because he's given it to me and he's given me his spirit to walk with him, to know him, to obey him. I I can do those things, by the way. Previously, without the Spirit, you really couldn't. The Spirit provides now the power and the motivation to obey God. Do you buy into the belief that in order to really be acceptable to God, in order to really sit at His table, in order to be an A-plus Christian, you got to do more and more and more or enough, enough, enough. I think that there is often a, a way in which this is presented even in the Christian community today that may be subtler than the way it was in Paul's day. In Paul's day, obviously the teachers of the law came in and they said you got to add the Mosaic law to Jesus. I think it comes in in a subtler way in our communities and it is this. If you are claiming to be Christian and you are not doing this, giving this, you are not radical enough, you don't love him enough, you don't go to enough places, then maybe you're really not a Christian at all. But I am. Because I do this and this and this and this and this. It's a devastating misunderstanding of the grace of God. And if you're running on that hamster wheel to earn his approval, to prove that Jesus died and rose again for you, then you're missing what Paul is saying here. And you're living in slavery. And I know for me, over the last few years, this concept has probably been the most important concept that, that is changing the way that I understand God, my relationship with Him, all the things that I do, my relationships with others. To really grasp, it's one thing to say it, it's another thing to, to begin to get that God accepts you right now, sitting in this room, because of Jesus Christ. Nothing you do or say will make him love you more or less. And once I have that sense of peace that I am his, then I serve him because he's called me to and I, I want to. It becomes a relationship of love between me and my Savior. How do you know that you're acceptable? How do you know that you're okay? If I were to ask you that this morning, for some, it may be you have never entered into a relationship with God through Jesus for the first time. And the most critical thing to understand this morning is that Jesus died to pay the penalty for all your sin. Everything you've done, everything you've thought that was wrong, everything that you have done to disobey God, everything you've done to hurt another person in Jesus Christ, it's forgiven because he died for you and he rose again. And if you trust in him, You can know you have eternal life. You can know God accepts you forever and ever and ever. For those who know him this morning, on a day-to-day basis, do you apply that to your life? If I ask you when you came in here this morning, what makes you right with God? Your answer ought to be, because Jesus died and rose again for me. 
And I have an everlasting love because of what he's done. Why do you obey him? Because if I don't, God won't like me. Because if I don't, other people won't like me. Maybe God will say, "Mm, not sure about that kid, right? That's the one we don't really talk about a whole lot. Or do you say, no, Jesus died and rose again for me. And because he's accepted me and loved me, I got to love him back. I got to tell other people. I got to follow the voice of the spirit and obey him. That's what I see in Paul's life. He says, I want to know him now. The fellowship of his suffering. I'm, I'm willing even to suffer for him. Even being conformed to his death in order that somehow, he says, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul's not expressing uncertainty here, by the way. He's just saying this is an unbelievable mystery, that the God of the universe would give his son to die and rise again for me and then allow me to rise again as well. And so I chase after him day after day, step by step, so I can know him. Let's not believe the lie that we got to somehow prove we're acceptable to God. Jesus died and rose again, and he declares, you're righteous. All the obligations are met. And now we follow after that kind of a God who has given us eternal life and given us acceptance with him and says, you're in. You're in my in-group because of Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for your word and the good news of the gospel that Jesus died for us, rose again, and you have declared us righteous because you see what he has done. We want to obey. We want to serve. We want to do what is right. We know that sin has consequences that are often painful and devastating. And yet we also know that nothing we do earns us your favor. So teach us to listen and obey. And like Paul, to desire to know you, to desire to love you, because often we really don't, if we're honest. Teach us to do that as we come face to face day after day with all you've done for us in Jesus Christ. Out of gratitude, out of joy that he talks about in this book. Teach us to be yours more and more as we walk with you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a wonderful week.